So I was thinking about Christmas, obviously, this last week, and I've been thinking about it a lot because we've been decorating a lot around our, our campus. You've been December nights. We go pretty, pretty hard this time of the year. And I was thinking about a lot of memories that, I, for some reason, I was flooded with this last week of kind of Christmas growing up. And I remember the different uh, family traditions that we do. One family tradition is um, when I was like eight or nine, we started, um, is I had to help my dad put all the Christmas lights up on the tree. My dad was pretty old, and so when he'd climb up the, the ladder, my mom would get super nervous, and so I'd have to go up there with him and make sure that I did all the sketchy things, and he was kind of just ordering me what to do, right? Because one year, he actually fell off the, our roof into the pool, and we were hoping that he would continue to land in the pool, because if he didn't, then that would be a different Christmas story, right? So, um, so yeah, so I was always doing the sketchy things. I was always on the ladders. And another memory that I have is the first week of, of December, we would always um, kind of set up our Christmas tree together, right? We would decorate it, whatever it is, and I would decorate it, and my mom would go, that was terrible, and then she'd redecorate it, right? Or um, one memory that I have was that we would always come together as a, as a family, and we'd, on our, like, table, we'd lay out different letters and things like that, and we'd all have to write letters to family members. And I was thinking about that a lot this last week, like, that's kind of weird, like, why would my parents make us light, like, write, like, a bunch of letters to family members that I don't really see that often, like, like people that, are, that live across the country, like my grandma, I have a grandma that lives in Pennsylvania, and I've seen her a few times in my life. And, and so I'd have to write her letters, and we'd send her pictures of this and that and whatever it was. And I was thinking a lot about that last week. And like, why did we do that? Like, why was that one of the family traditions that my parents really wanted us to do? And the thought that came to mind is I think that maybe deep down inside of us, there's this desire to want to be connected to people, maybe to be connected to maybe even extended family members. Now, most of us, though, and it's probably the people in this room, I've talked with a good amount of you about this, um, we keep a, felt like a, a, a relatively small family structure right? Like, and, and especially in America, right? Like, you think about this, there's probably um, not many people that you keep in contact with, at least on general, like, like, like people in your family. And in America especially, right, we kind of focus on individuals and things like that. And if you go to other countries, Latin countries, or even um, Eastern countries and things like that, they focus a lot around family. Family's really important. And it's not so much important here. And if you're anything like me, you, you had parents, mom and dad, and you're close with them. And then you have a sister or a brother that you were close with. And other than that, I had one grandparent that I was really close with. And, and then I had a dog and a goldfish. And that was about it. That was the extent of like my family, right? That was my, my immediate family, the people that I guess you would say I was the closest with. And I thought that was interesting. And, and I grew up not really, really desiring like much of a connection with people outside of that immediate family. My parents wanted me to have that, but I never really grew up with a desire to be super connected to my extended family. But I'm, not, I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one. So in fact, I want to do a little survey, a little activity. I'm a junior high pastor. I love to get the audience involved in things. So everyone stand on up real quick. Everyone stand on up. Stretch, wake up. So stay standing if you know the names of grandma or grandpa. I'm going to hope that everyone here knows that, right? Okay, stay standing. Is anyone sitting? I'm just kidding. Uh, stay standing if you know uh, the names of your great grandparents. Either one, doesn't matter who it is. All right, people are grabbing a seat, yeah. I would sit down right now, by the way. I actually don't know who my great grandparents are. No, just one, just one. Not all of them. That'd be pretty intense, wouldn't it? All right, stay standing if you know your great, great grandparents' names. Great, great grandparents' names. There's my wife, perfect. All right, it's the, all right, stay standing if you know your great, great, just your great, great grandparents' jobs, what they did for a living, what they did. You're just going to be the only one. You're going to be the only one. There's a few of us. All right, stay standing if you know your great, great, great grandparents' names. Dang, what the heck, really? 
All right, all right, stay standing if you know your great, 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 great grandparents' names. I don't care, here we are. All right, grab a seat. Dang, that's awesome. There's a few of you guys that could do it. Now you probably don't really remember, you're lying. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. I was thinking about that this last week and how far I could go back in my mind to like who was really in my family, like the heritage that I have, right? And I, I go back to my grandma and that's about it. After that, I'm like, I have no idea what my great grandma's name was or my great grandpa's name was. I have zero idea. And the fact that we don't really know all of our family history or heritage or even their names, I think can be a blessing and it also can be a curse. I mean, think about it. I think it's sad that that many of us don't really know much about our family history or our heritage or anything like that. But we also don't let the mistakes or the failures of other people really define who we are. But that wasn't the way that it always was, right? In fact, that's not the way that it was for a very long time. Your family defined, especially during the time of the Christmas story, Jesus being born 2,000 years ago, your family defined exactly who you were. And people took a lot of pride in who their ancestors were, or they took a lot of shame in who their ancestors were. And if your ancestors or someone way down the line did something incredible, did something great, you could celebrate forever because they did something incredible. But if they did something wrong, your entire family had to deal with that embarrassment or that shame for generations to come. In fact, there's stories of of people writing each other off just because of what they're like, just because of who was in their ancestry, who was back in their family history, or the opposite of that, people being embraced and getting offered uh, different jobs and, and different prestige and things along those lines just because of people in their family. Now, in Jesus' culture, knowing your ancestors was a big deal. Like, it was a big, big, big deal that if you would need to know who your ancestors were. So the journey that we're going to kind of take today, and what I want to kind of journey through um, the story, is the Christmas story found in Matthew chapter 1. Now, last week, if you were here, I spoke on Luke chapter 2, and, and, and we kind of talked about um, the Christmas story from that angle, from that kind of perspective. Today, I want to take kind of a, a new angle at the Christmas story, and, and if, if you're new to church or um, you don't really know much about the Christmas story, the Christmas story can be found in two books of the Bible, Luke, like we read last week, and Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be reading this week. And there's something interesting that, that the two stories kind of focus on. Now, last week we spoke a lot about kind of the, Luke was trying to illustrate a very specific point because both Luke and Matthew are writing to a very specific audience. Each are targeting different audiences and they're trying to tell us something very specific about this, about this, this baby boy, about this Christ, about this Messiah. And so Luke focuses on like that we talked about that he was a baby, right? And we kind of just paused on the reality, the thought that still humbles me, even though I think about it, like the, the creator of all things was a baby at one point right? Like would have known what it was like to have a diaper changed, right? Or would have got a fever or a headache. Like that, that, that's what we talked about last week and it still floors me. I'm humbled by that reality. And Matthew, Matthew kind of focuses on a, a different focus on Jesus. His was, was focused to try towards a Jewish audience that would have all of the Old Testament prophecies and all the Old Testament stories, the 39 books of the Old uh, Testament, like he would, they, they would know these things. And he's trying to tell us something very specific, that Jesus came through the lineage of Abraham through the line of David. And he's trying to tell us that he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of of the Old Testament things that were leading up to this baby born. That's that's what Jesus came to do. And he fulfilled all of those different specific uh, prophecies. Now today, like like I said, we're going to jump into the book of Matthew. Uh, Not like chapter like 27, I think Cody's in. We're jumping all the way into verse 1, chapter 1. But before we begin, Matthew says, all right, listen, 
There's some things that you need to know. There's some like, get a pump the brakes before you jump right into the story, before you learn about the, the incredible uh, Messiah that Jesus was, the 33 years that he lived on earth, or the, 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 the incredible miracles that he did where he walked on water and he was nailed to a cross and then he resurrected. Before you get to any of those things, there's something you need to know about this Jesus. And so if you're anything like me, you've probably flipped open your Bible, especially if you're a new Christian or you just got a Bible, you flip it open because you know you need to learn about Jesus. And so you flip open to the New Testament, the very first book, the book of Matthew. And you, wrote, you go right into Matthew chapter one and you go, what? And there's all these lists of these really long names that neither of you and I can really pronounce, nor do we really know like the history really behind all those things. And so what do you do? You flip the page and you go right into Matthew chapter two. Tonight, I want to kind of pump the brakes and say, like, Matthew wrote that for a very specific reason. I mean, there's a reason all those really intense names are in there, and he's trying to tell you and I something about Jesus. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of jump into the genealogy, and that's just a really fancy word that talks about, like, family heritage. And Matthew writes 42 generations deep. We're not going to jump all the way that because that would take forever to go through. But 42 generations, he goes from, from Jesus all the way back 42 generations. That's insane, right? We can't even remember like our third generation uh, behind us. And so uh, let me read it for us. I'm only going to go through uh, verses 1 to 6 because it goes all the way to verse 17. And it's a bunch of names that I don't want to embarrass myself on. So uh, I think the verses will be up behind me. Um, and you can follow along. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So a 21st century like American, Westerner reads this and we go, huh? And like, who really cares, right? Like, who cares who was... You're great, 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 whatever, right? Like, that's not super important. But remember that Matthew's writing to, like, a Jewish audience. So these things would be really, really important. And Jewish audiences would, would want to understand a genealogy, that there's, there's, a, there's a group of people that in, are in Jesus' family that he was really trying to highlight. And that's what we're going to be kind of talking about today, the people that he was trying to highlight. Now, the genealogy is important for two reasons. The one was that he was writing to a Jewish audience. But that's not entirely important for us. So the second is the one we're going to focus on today. And it's the reason that, that he was writing is something... I think important, at least speaks a lot to me. He inserts people in his family that you wouldn't want in your family, right? And I'm sure you have family, like members of your family that you're not like super stoked these people are in your family, right? Do you have that, that person in your family like, when they come around? Maybe you don't, that'd be great. Um, but when they come around, you're kind of always on edge because you just don't really know what they're gonna say. And you constantly feel like you have to apologize. Like, hey, I'm sorry, they're kind of crazy, right? Or whatever it is, because they're kind of constantly saying things that are super embarrassing or super provocative or whatever it is. Matthew inserts a group of people that you would like want to erase from your family lineage and family uh, history. And he does it to really tell us something about Jesus. So on the surface, it looks like just a long list of names that are like, what on earth, right? Like well, a long list of names that are difficult to pronounce and they don't really mean anything. But he inserts five names, five specific names that are really interesting. And they're interesting because they belong to women. Now, you're like, what? <laughs> now, they belong to women, and he's trying to tell us something. So way back during this time, whenever they'd be writing genealogies, women were always an afterthought. In fact, you can look through genealogies of, of, of uh, Israelites or Jewish people, and almost there'll never be a woman in there. And, he, and that's because they were an afterthought. They weren't really like important in society and things 2,000 years ago. But... Matthew puts them in there because he's really trying to tell us something. He's trying to illustrate something about these, these people. So we have 42 generations. There's only five women 
in here. And tonight we're going to talk just about four of them, and they're kind of incredible, intense stories. Now, the first is, is in verse 3. Her name is Tamar. Now, if you don't know the story of Tamar, um, if I share the entire story, I'll probably get fired because it's like a rated, no, it's rated X. The story is crazy. Let me just share a little bit about it. So it's found in Genesis 38. And this story is like by far one of the craziest in, in, in all of the Bible. I mean, you ever, like, like we watch these like movies and like when I was a kid, when I'd be home from school, maybe you would too, um, I would always watch whenever my parents would leave the room, Jerry Springer. Yeah, you guys, do you guys ever like always watch like these random, right? So you're sitting there and you're like, fight, fight, right? <laughs> right? You're doing whatever it is. I'm telling you, like the Bible, the Old Testament is littered with Jerry Springer, like Dr. Phil Oprah type of stories. And this is one of them. This is like the pinnacle of, the, of Jerry Springer uh, stories. So let me kind of quickly share the story. So Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. And what ends up happening is Judah dies. And so back in that kind of time, it was the responsibility of the, of the, um, of the husband's family to find a new husband. Most often, it would be the brother-in-law. That's kind of how it worked. The, the younger brother would step in line to marry um, uh, his brother's wife because, you know, he died. So what ends up happening is this is exactly what happens. But the brother-in-law ends up dying. So she goes to Judah looking for a third husband. And he says, go away for a few years. We'll figure it out. A few years went by, and um, she's still waiting for her husband. And this is where it gets weird. This is where it gets, like, X-rated. So she decides, because she's fed up with this, it's been too long, that she's going to dress up as a prostitute. And she's going to stand outside of where Judah's going to be. She's going to seduce him and sleep with him. What? Right, and that's exactly what happens. So what ends up happening is, during it all, she, like, uncovers herself, like, ta-da, right? And he's like, what? What ends up happening is she gives birth to his kid. And now she... Now, he is forced to marry her and take care of her. And this person, this baby, ends up being Jesus' great, 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 like times 30 grandfather. But it gets even weirder. So in verse 5, there's a girl named Rahab. And her story is found in Joshua chapter 2. And if you don't know much about the story, I'll quickly kind of share it. Rahab didn't just dress like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. That was her job, right? And what ends up happening is she finds out that the city of Jericho, where she lives, is about to be... Um, conquered by the Israelites. And she knows that her people are wicked. They were known to do incredible things. They were known to uh, incredibly evil, wicked things, like kill babies, uh, stuff them in jars, and put them in the walls of the city, right? So she knows that her people are terrible and that the Israelites worship a God that's real and it's all powerful and it's going to take their city and kill everyone in them. So she figures out a plan to uh, save herself. And how she's going to do it is, number one, she's going to believe in Yahweh. That's the God of the Old Testament. And two, uh, she's going to um, hide these spies in her home so that when uh, they, can, she, they can survey the land and they can keep her and her family safe when they come and, uh, and attack and kill, kill everyone. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Everyone ends up dying, but Rahab ends up living because she uh, cared for the, uh, the spies and because she be- began to worship Yahweh. And God used her despite her crazy past. And this person ends up being Jesus's great, great, great times like 10 grandmother. And then there's in verse five also talks about Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabite. And again, that doesn't really mean anything to you and I. But if we read Deuteronomy, it talks about that if anyone were to marry a Moabite, that they were never allowed to go to church for 10 generations. Right? So these people were so, so bad that if your great, great, great times 10 grandfather was one of them, you weren't even allowed to go to church or go to the synagogue with your neighbors. The Moabites were infamous for a few things. Number one, they were infamous for incest, and they were, they were infamous for like human sacrifice. And this is the family that Ruth comes from. But she turns from that life, and, and, and she, she gives her life over to the one true God, and eventually becomes King David's great-grandmother and Jesus' great, 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 great-grandmother. 
And then the last one, which is the most interesting story to me, where we're going to kind of focus most on tonight, is verse 6. And this is maybe the story that you probably know, and it's a, it's a girl named Bathsheba. And she's probably the most famous uh, woman in Jesus' lineage. Imagine this with me. So one night, the, the, you know, King David's in his palace. It's high above the city, and he sees all the, the, all the entire city and the beautiful gardens that are in Israel. And he's up there, and out of nowhere, he sees a woman bathing on her roof. I don't know why that, but that's, that, that's where they bathe. And she sees that, and he goes, he grabs a servant and says, hey, I want you to go get that girl and bring her to me. So the servant runs over there, grabs the girl, brings Bathsheba over to, uh, over to King David. <laughs> King David sleeps with her. About one month later, uh, she comes back, knocks on the, on the palace door and says, hey, um, I'm pregnant. And he's like, okay, um, I'll marry you. He goes, there's a problem. I'm married to your best friend. And he's like, He's like, what? Like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm married to your best friend, Uriah. And he's like, oh no, I wish you would have told me that. <laughs> right? Like, and he's like, I wish you weren't a creep, right? And, and, and so he's like, oh no, what are we going to do? So he kind of comes up with this plan. Uriah is at war. He's a general in his army, and he's at war miles and miles away fighting King David's war. King David's supposed to be there, but he decided to take the war off, and he's hanging out in his palace. And that's where he got himself into trouble. And so what ends up happening is he's like, all right, we're going to bring Uriah back home and, you know, you're going to sleep with him because you're his husband, you're his wife, that'd be weird. Uh, and um, you're going you're to figure it out and he's going to be convinced that this baby is his. So that's exactly what happens. Uriah comes back, but he doesn't even go home with his wife. He walks straight to King David and says, I can't go home and be with my wife. In fact, I don't even want to see my wife. My men are out, out on the war field and, and, and they're dying. Right? There's no way. I'll sleep right here on your palace floor. And he's like, Frick. He's like, what am I going to do, right? Like, like, oh no. So what ends up happening is um, he's like, I got it. I'm going to throw the craziest party, right? I'm going to have a DJ. It's going to be popping. This is what we're going to do. The liquor is going to be flowing, right? It's going to be popping, right? Or as the kids say, it's going to be lit, right? So that's what's going to happen. And he gets so plastered, he falls in the same place, falls, falls asleep right in the same spot that he did in the palace. Now King David's like, oh my gosh, right? Like, why won't this guy just go home with his wife, right? Like, what am I going to do, right? And he goes, I have to kill him. I have to kill my best friend. So he writes this detailed note saying, you got to send Uriah to the front of the line to be killed in battle. And so he signs it, puts his seal on it, sends it to Uriah. Uriah has no idea. He's in his hands holding his death certificate, essentially, right? So he goes to the leader of the army, hands him the note, opens it up, and it says, send Uriah to the front of the line to be killed. And he looks at him and goes, what'd you do, man? <laughs> and he goes, all right, you got to go to the, uh, the front of the line. He's like, all right, ends up dying in, at war. And King David gets a letter that says he died in war, and he goes, it's all done. It's all done perfect. Not entirely. So what's happening is, is the prophet Nathan gets sent by God to accuse David of what's going on. And he says that, so Nathan comes to him and says, all right, king, there has been a real big injustice in your land. Something really bad has happened that you, the king, need to know about. And he goes, all right, tell me what it is. He says, a rich man was stealing from a poor man and is using what he stole to use like his, like his own. Furious at what King David hears, he says, and this is like a famous quote, he says, as God lives, the one who has deserved this, has done this, deserves death. Give me that guy. I will cut his head off myself. And Nathan goes, interesting. You're that man. All of a sudden, dun, 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 right? Like, this is moment. And David says, oh, frick, you don't caught. And he says this really famous, like this famous quote in the Old Testament. He says, I have sinned before God. And he asks God for forgiveness, and God does forgive him because we worship a forgiving God but God still does punish him because we also worship a just God. 
And so what ends up happening is that that baby that Bathsheba was going to give birth to ends up dying. But a few years later, David and Bathsheba have a new child. His name is Solomon, and we know him as King Solomon. Now you're thinking, okay, uh, what does that mean with the story of Christmas, right? Other than like all this girl gone wild, you know, like stories, like, like <laughs> what on earth does that mean about the Christmas story, right? How does that equate at all to like this incredible story of this birth of this, you know, Jesus? How, how, what on earth is Matthew trying to say here? Well, think about this. Matthew chapter one is like the introduction to Jesus, Jesus's birth, Jesus kind of into the world. And it's kind of this strange introduction, right? It's like, hi, uh, my name is Jesus. Um, I come from a messed up family uh, full of messed up people who did some pretty messed up things. In fact, let me tell you, uh, my great, great, great grandmother pretended that she was a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. It gets weirder. Um, my great, great, great grandmother actually was a prostitute. And my great, great, great grandparents had an affair then tried to cover it up. In doing so, killed a bunch of people. And my great-grandfather killed um, his best friend to cover it all up more. God looks at this messed up, this crazy family and says, I'm going to send the savior of the world, of all of mankind, into this family, along with a handful of other liars and cheats and prostitutes and murderers, into this family. And we have to ask the question, why? Why? Why would he choose that family? So here's the point, and I don't want you to miss it. Because the messed up people just aren't a part of the story. They are the point of the story. And you and I are also the point of this story because we're messed up sinners. The Christmas season is really about two things. Number one, Jesus came from sinners to save sinners. Jesus came from a lineage of messed up people to save messed up people. He came to, to save us from a sinking ship that you and I couldn't get ourselves off of. And the second one that, that's, that's, I guess, most near and dear to my heart, I've been thinking about this a lot this last season and week, is that Christmas is about the story of God telling you and me, no matter who you come from and what you've done, God can use you and me. He's going to write you a new story regardless of the mistakes that you've made because he's the author of life. And here, here, I guess here's why this means so much to me. Is I, I always grew up like with a, always feeling like inadequate. You know, I, I always felt like that I just wasn't going to amount really to anything. I always was the kid that was really shy. I was always the kid that struggled. I was always the kid that was highly insecure because I just didn't really have an identity. And I allowed in, in junior high and high school and to, to people just to, to dictate who I was going to be. In fact, I grew up kind of, I always felt like in the shadow of my twin sister. And her name is Melissa. I always felt that she was just better than I was. Like that she was just given more gifts and more talents and, and that she was just better than I was in every way. I mean, she was the one that always had the good grades, was in the accelerated classes, and I was always the ones that were in the slower classes and the ones that weren't the accelerated classes, like Gate. She was the one that was the captain of her, all of her, you know, her, her teams, her softball and volleyball and track and all the other teams, and I couldn't even make the teams. She was the, the, you know, the, the popular one that had all the good looks, and I felt like I just got all like the, the junk DNA, right? And I always kind of like struggled. <laughs> I seriously, I always felt like I was like, man, what happened to me, man? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, in fact, if you were to go into our rooms, I have this, this memory of like, and it's, it's a, such a sad memory, like of walking into, into my sister's room as a kid and, and all over her walls were trophies and all over her walls were, were pictures of her friends and, and all these other types of things, right? And they were all trophies for her athletics and, and, and her academics and things along those lines. And if you walked into my room, do you know what you saw? Bare walls. You didn't really see anything. It was just bare green walls. 
And I always felt, like I said, like I always lived in the shadow of my sister, that I wasn't really going to amount to anything or that God couldn't use somebody like me. I didn't have the talents. I didn't have the natural gifts. I, God couldn't use me for anything. He couldn't use what, the little that I have to move anybody, to influence anybody, to create a movement or to tell the good news to people. And one of the most amazing things that I've learned about Christmas is this, is that God is unimpressed by our resumes. God scoffs at our attempt to show him our worthiness. He used a family, think about this. He used a family of mess-ups to fix the greatest mess-up in history, sin. You know, I guess as we end today, I want to encourage you. God enjoys, I think he finds pleasure in using the meek of this world to demonstrate his greatness. And if you surrender to him, And in his plan for your life, what I can promise you is he's going to do incredible things through you and leave an impact that will impact people for generations to come. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the Christmas story. A story that shows that you use meek people to bring an incredible message. You use imperfect people to bring a perfect message of reconciliation, of love, of hope, Lord, may, we, may our lives be focused on you. May you use our talents and our treasure and our times in a way that, that brings people to you and leaves an impact in this world. Lord, I pray that it's said about our lives that we live more to build your name than build ours. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen.